Hello, everybody. This is Craig, one of your co-hosts. Hi, Craig. Andrew, I thought you were going to back me. I'm sorry. <laughs> this is your show. Uh, I'm Andrew. Hi. Um, usually, you would be hearing the uh, opening theme song uh, of the show, but we uh, we want to take a You're moment. Still going to listen to the opening theme song? Well, yeah, but usually be hearing it now. This is this dis- disclaimer is going on very long. Uh, the book <laughs> that we're going to talk about this week, Jack Ketchum's The Girl Next Door, is pretty graphic in its depiction of violence of both just a horrible and sometimes a sexual nature. So, uh, and there's there will need to be swearing as we talk about it. There are quotes from the book that have swearing in them. So, not only if you have sensitive ears, but if you if you are sensitive to that type of material, I, I really don't feel like I want you to listen to it if you aren't up <laughs> for it. Um, yeah, I mean it, it's it's I did not I did not read it, but I have read up on it and. Yeah, it sounds like there, you know, there's some, there's some torture, there's some, some rape, there's a lot of, there's some mutilation. I don't know. There's a lot of, there's a lot of stuff in this one. This is, this is an, an episode that was recommended by a listener, and, and we're, we're just along for the ride, I guess. Um, but yeah, if if any of that stuff, if any of that stuff bothers you, definitely, we won't, we won't. Hold it against you if you don't listen this week, I guess, is what I'm saying. Is that right? That is exactly correct. Okay, great. On with the show. While Andrew and Craig believe the joy of discovery is crucial to enjoying any well-told tale, they will not shy away from spoiling specific story beats when necessary. Plus, these are books you should have read by now. So Andrew, uh, so Craig, I don't know if this has ever happened to you. Have you ever been fished? Have you ever gotten fished? My grandmother has gotten fished. Um, somebody called her, saying that saying that they were me, and that I was stuck in Mexico, and that I needed two thousand dollars. <laughs> I forgot she, that that happened. Yeah, she did, and she, and she gave them the two thousand dollars, and then. But I like she realized that it wasn't me, but she realized too late, like she had already wired oh, the money. Oh no! I know it was, and and by the time she got in touch with the authorities, of course, there was like nothing that could be done about it. So <sighs> that was that was bad. I mean, if I if I oh, knew that, that oh. I could get two thousand dollars just by <laughs> calling and pretending to have a have, have an emergency. I think I would have pulled that grift by now, but somebody beat me to it. Your rainy day grift was uh, taken off the table. <laughs> yeah, I got... Welcome to Overdue. This is a podcast about the books you've been meaning to read. My name is Craig. My name is Andrew. Uh, and I got fished last weekend while I was in New York City. The Big Apple. The Big Wormy Rotten Apple. Uh, it's not New York's fault that you got fished. No, it's... I guess it's my brain's fault for thinking that just by being in New York and going to a pizza place ATM that, you know, it would be believable that someone would have stolen my credit card. That is the one place where <laughs> I use that credit card in New York. And I said, well, yeah, sure, totally. This voicemail telling me there's been fraudulent activity is totally real because I'm in New York and I never go to New York and I never eat New York pizza. I like the idea that some somebody at your at your lender, at your bank or whatever, saw that and was like, Pizza? Well, pizza in New York? This is different from the place he normally gets pizza. I don't think yes. this is okay. That's what it is, because they knew that they knew, they know. I couldn't decide on a tense on that word. So you just they combine them knew. into one super vowel. <laughs> uh, they knew that I'm a big fan of Philadelphia pizza through and through. Different types of fancy pizza, and I would never eat pizza in New York. I totally did. It was delicious. And you have a New York slice, New York slice, and uh, someone ripped my card. I thought, well, it turns out that the number that called me was fishing me and I gave them my card over the phone and that number that they called me from stopped working two calls later uh, after nothing had happened. And uh, then I called the actual card company and they're like, yeah, you messed up. (laughs) 
<laughs> you idiot. They're like, well, that card's dead now. We canceled that, and uh, we'll send you a new one, idiot. Can you come up with a code word? Like, you know, if, if your parents were going to send somebody to pick you up at school, you would have, like, a safety phrase that that they would need to tell now, you so you knew that your parents had actually... I want to say that we've talked about this on the podcast before, and I can't remember if I've said what my family's catchphrase is catchphrase is the wrong word uh <laughs> what our what my family's phrase is it does exist and i think we still will use it if one of us like comes back from the future and says you need to go with me right now that is our other nightmare scenario so are you going to say it or are you afraid that if you say it on the podcast people will start pretending that they're from the future i, w- I will not say it Okay. I will not say it. If we'll I talk, have, we'll talk about it later. If I have said it on a previous episode, I hope someone starts a wiki and uh, puts it in the wiki. So the overdue wiki. There's that is that is something that is long overdue. Uh, so this week, every week, we talk about a book that uh, we should have read by now. Uh, most of the time. Most of the time. <laughs> this week, we uh, I read Jack Ketchum's The Girl Next Door, which was. Res- uh, recommended to us by a listener, uh, Andrew. Recommended is a strong word. Okay, I think for the. <laughs> okay, so as some of you who've been listening lately know, uh, we are running a Patreon campaign where folks can help support the show, and one of the rewards is that your recommendation goes to the top of the list. Well, we haven't needed to vet recommendations yet, and maybe we might. Um, I'm not sure. You, you'll see what I mean, Andrew. Do you have uh, the email recommending this book? I do. Do uh, we want to say the get, name could, or do we want to protect this person's um, identity? Yeah, you could just read me what... You don't have to say their name. Okay, okay. Um, the book that I would like you to read is The Girl Next Door by Jack Ketchum. This is not my favorite book. In fact, it is a book that I wish that I could unread because it's so horrifying. Don't hate me. Godspeed. <laughs> you know what I am going to say her name? Saren... Um, <laughs> what have you done? Uh, yeah, this book is based on a true story. Andrew, can you just like give me some breathing room and talk about the author? You did a little research on Jack Ketchum, yeah? I did do a little research on Jack Ketchum, and um, he's he's a horror writer, an American horror writer, kind of in the vein of Stephen King, I guess. Stephen King once to... Stephen King once called him once answered the question who's the scariest man in America by saying Jack Ketchum. Okay. Okay? That's what right. you need to know. So Jack Ketchum, no relation to Ash Ketchum. No Pokemon here, folks. This is this ain't no fucking children's show. <laughs> Jesus. I'm really glad there's no Pokemon here. That would ruin that game for me forever. <laughs> Um, his, his real name is Dallas William Mayer. Yeah. He made a Y R I guess, which actually seems like a pretty cool name. Does, like da- Dallas Mayer. Does it sound Dallas W Mayer? Does it sound like too much like a cowboy? Maybe. Maybe that's why he changed maybe, it. Maybe if he's reading, he's writing like Lonesome Dove type books, Dallas Mayer would be a better name. But, um, yeah, he, he, one of his pen names is Jack Ketchum. One of his earlier pen names, I guess, when he was writing short fiction was Jersey Livingston. Yeah, which is like some because, weird Yeah, joke. because get this, he <laughs> lived in Livingston, New Jersey. <laughs> and he was reading, he was reading uh, an author whose first name was Jersey. That's, that That's is something. true. It, wasn't, it <laughs> okay. wasn't like he like New Jersey'd his first name or anything like that. Sure, right. And I'm okay. So I'm I'm not I don't want to put him on blast too much. It does seem like his Wikipedia page was probably written by his publicist. Yeah, I mean he's because it talks about like the Halloween costumes and stuff that he preferred. Yeah, as a, as a child, which is like it's fine, fine. I'm glad I'm glad that that information is out there somewhere. But let me give you and, and you know Wikipedia like there are in there are whole pages for like individual Seinfeld episodes. So I don't know. Maybe I'm. Maybe I'm imposing like too strict limits on what a Wikipedia article should be. But anyway, what were you saying? I'm saying that from the jackketchum.net website, uh, the first sentence of his like biography 
is Jack Ketchum is the pseudonym for a former actor, singer, teacher, literary agent, lumber salesman, and soda jerk, a former flower child and baby boomer who figures that in 1956, Elvis, dinosaurs, and horror probably saved his life. So there you yeah. go. And then er- early years on his on his Wikipedia page, a one-time actor, teacher, literary agent, lumber salesman, and soda jerk. So somebody was doing some copying and pasting. <laughs> uh, I think who... He he definitely comes out of a particular horror writing tradition. I, I yeah, think, like his you know his pedigree. I guess is Robert Block or mm-hmm. how would you pronounce that? B L O C H. I would say Block. We've got a really like rich tradition of just totally not preparing to pronounce names on this show. It's pretty good. We should roll with it. It's fine. Yeah, uh, Robert Block, who uh, who was the author of Psycho, and um. So H.P. Lovecraft mentored Block, and then Block mentored Ketchum. Yeah. Apparently, and I, I so there's like a there's like a apprenticeship lineage kind of thing going. <laughs> yeah, there's what I've read about the rest of Ketchum's work, which is certainly on display in this one, is that um, he, save for some short stories, he's not really interested in the supernatural in the same way that someone like Stephen King is. Mm-hmm. Um. He has certainly won, you know, a lot of recognition in his field, but a, a lot of what he seems interested in as a writer of horror is the bounds of human terribleness. Um, yeah, and, I was just gonna, I was just gonna say, <laughs> like, what causes people to do terrible things, and uh, what is the worst thing they could do, <laughs> and like, not, not so much like evil dogs. Yeah, not evil dogs, not like supernatural uh, devil salesmen. I read... Whatever the stand was about. (laughs) Yeah, whatever that was. I read Needful Things in middle school. I probably shouldn't have. That's a Stephen (laughs) King book I shouldn't have read. Um, So yeah, Jack Ketchum's books have... uh, Three of them have recently been made into movies. I think it's The Girl Next Door, Red, and... I want to say the loss, but I'm not. I'm not sure. Uh, and all of those kind of, from what I understand, uh, dance with whether or not they are like torture porn. Like he's not afraid to show you terrible stuff. Sure. So it's like saw the book. Sure. Yeah, that's a great <laughs> place to start on this one. Um, anybody who tuned in last week and was like, "This podcast sounds great. They're so funny. They made fun of life on the open plains." There might not be a lot of chuckles this week. You guys got to buckle up, okay? I will say just one light note before we get started on, I don't know, down this spiral. Let <laughs> we we talked a lot about ironing clothes last week and we were puzzled as to why ironing clothes would be a thing that you would do before you had like constructed a shelter for your for yourself Uh somebody on our facebook page pointed out that um back in pioneer times ironing was primarily done to get like ticks and fleas and stuff out of your clothes to kill them and the fact that it flattened out the creases in your laundry was kind of a kind of gravy i guess (laughs) I, and so as 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 vermin have become less widespread, you know, ironing has has taken on a different connotation. That's so true. I, th- I thought it was interesting. I learned something. I read some weird like "Get Back to Nature." You don't need to iron your clothes. Article like a year ago. It was the. I'm just. That was dumb. <laughs> That's just somebody who doesn't want to iron their clothes. Like working backward <laughs> to an argument about why they shouldn't have to. <laughs> yeah, like you gotta. I don't know if someone came into the office and the, like you come to the office, you need to wear your jeans and your Mickey Mouse T-shirt. That's fine. But if you come in in like bad dress clothes or like dress clothes that aren't meeting their mark, that's almost worse. In my opinion. <laughs> I don't have any follow ups. Andrew, I'm trying to avoid talking about this book. We got to We got to do it. Girl next door. Let's let's. Let's get into it, I guess. Okay. Do you want... So, okay. So, Ketchum first heard about this story, uh, which is based on, but not in a true crime way, based on a murder in 1965 in Indiana. 
Um, uh, this girl, Sylvia Likens, uh, was tortured to death by Gertrude Banizuski. Again, no preparation for saying that right, but it looks fairly... I think that was pretty, yeah, pretty close. looks fairly pretty phonetic. Um, at the time, the prosecutor in the trial called it the most terrible crime ever committed in the state of Indiana. Uh, Likens' parents were carnival folk, I believe, um, and they lived on the road, and they left their daughter, Sylvia, and her sister, Jenny, with this woman, Gertrude Banaszewski, who had five other kids, and we're going to pay her like $20 a week to take care of her. I thought it was seven other kids. I thought, it was, oh, I thought, yes, you're right. Single excuse mother me. of seven children. Yeah, yeah, excuse me, I did the math wrong, excuse me. Um, and not long after that started, uh, there was a late stipend, and Banaszewski just took into being terrible to Sylvia, um, she was she suffered from depression and had several failed marriages and was you know not in a good way uh and just took to torturing the girl and her sister and kind of instructing all of her children in doing it as well uh, and also the neighborhood kids yeah come on over have a have a push pop and oh, god yeah we'll get uh, to that kind of thing because trying to make goofs all my goofs keep getting no, like sucked into the black I'm, hole of the subject matter. I'm gonna forgive your goofs. Like I'm gonna let you try and make them totally fine, and uh, we'll see what happens. Comic relief. Yep, that's your job. Uh, so some of this, some of this stuff does make it into the book, which is pretty terrible. Um, she was Gertrude herself. It's it's worth knowing that uh, after Sylvia died, and Gertrude called the police to come get her and try to pass it off as not murder. Uh, Sylvia's sister told the police that if they uh, helped her get out, that she would tell them everything that happened. Um, And after uh, some years in jail, um, like maybe 20, I think 20 or 30, um, Gertrude was actually released. Uh, Cool. She came up for parole in 1985. There's the math for you. And uh, despite public outcry, she was released on good behavior uh, and died a few years later from lung cancer. Um, so, and it's just just terrible. I like I can't. I don't want to go into the details of the of what happened to the girl uh, Sylvia because some of that's in the book and some of it I want to talk about and some of it I don't. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's just a nasty thing and. Uh, Ketchum in particular kind of seemed oddly fascinated by it in like a in like a I can't believe this is a real thing sort of way and there are there are it's it's the can't look away from a train wreck effect kind of I mean there there is this sort of morbid fascination that you get with things like this like I I think subject matter like this where you're looking at you know, particularly horrific crimes or like mass murders or something like it's very good Wikipedia hole fodder. Yeah, totally. Because you start getting into all these interconnected, like, like the individual people and other cases that it's related to and like the history of this kind of stuff. And it just, it's, it's bad. Well, so there's some, there's a little passage from Ketchum in the back of the book. Uh, where he says, sociopaths scare me and make me mad. Uh, and not just the big league ones like, you know, Manson or something like that. But the people who are just terrible to people on a day-to-day basis, you know. Um, mm-hmm. And the people that don't get caught because of it. And he said, I would wanted to write about one of these bastards for a long time. Their otherness and what happens to us real people when we believe them to be human. Um, so he came upon... J. Robert Nash's book, Blood Letters and Bad Men, that included the story of uh, Sylvia and Gertrude. And it stayed with him, and he wasn't sure if he should write it as a true crime book, but he didn't feel like he could really kind of represent it properly. Um, and then he decided to reset the novel in Jersey, where he grew up. Um mm-hmm. 
and kind of use this outside of New York late 50s Cold War era vibe that he certainly was part of his life and was certainly part of uh, the, the true story as the backdrop for the book. Um, so I guess we'll get into the plot. Yeah, we'll get into the book. Yeah, we got. We have to. We have to do it sometime. Sure. Uh, so I will say, Andrew. Even though, even though I saw that warning, and even though the first line of this book is "You think you know about pain," I, for us, for like a couple of chapters, thought it was going to be a different book. What kind of book did you think it was going to be? Because Girl Next Door could be the the name of virtually any book about anything. That's true. Right? I I guess it's because the first couple chapters, once you get into the flashback, the book is written as if it's taking place in the 1980s and the main character is in his 40s. Um, and it's it jumps back into the time period of the book when he's like 12, I guess in 1960. <clears throat> mm-hmm. And... There's a couple chapters where he's this young kid named David is meeting this girl named Meg who has just moved into her aunt's house with her sister Susan. And it's like kind of this Americana thing. Like all the kids play baseball and they're rascals and they kind of they run around during the summer and they get into trouble. And there's Ruth, this the neighbor, the, the mother who's a neighbor of David's. And her three boys, Willie, Donnie, and Woofer. I have, I'd had to get that right. Woofer, right? <laughs> Your first introduction to Woofer is him like bashing a worm with a rock. So you know, cool. Woofer's gonna work out. Um, he sounds like he's either a member of like a post-apocalyptic biker gang, <laughs> or he's like, I don't know. You have you assemble like an Ocean's Eleven style team, and he's the guy. He's the sound guy. <laughs> Or you, like you have Woofer and Tweaker, and they're the they're the twins who run the soundboard. You know it's Tweeter, right? Like the I high. Do now. Okay. <laughs> I think. Can we edit that? No, no. It's oh. funny. I think uh, Woofer is either a nickname that you really earn or that you hate having. How about that? Sure. Yeah, you know yeah. what I mean. Um, He's like I don't know. He's the it's a I'm getting a Goonies vibe from that name. <laughs> yeah, and there's like a kind of Stand by Me, early Stand by Me, um, and Goonies vibe to this early section where there's like there's Eddie who who's gets like a one line description as Eddie always gets you into trouble. Like Eddie's the trouble kid, you know. Uh, sure. Eddie's sister Denise is just like Eddie but older and weird. Um, so there's this like cast of neighborhood kids that is like the backdrop. But they all sound evil instead of like misunderstood or like well, ne'er-do-wells with hearts of gold or whatever well, they, the tropes are. Yeah, they, David seems fine. David's mostly fine. Um, so he meets Meg and he finds Meg uh, attractive. He's 12. She's a little bit older than him. She's new. Uh, she's sophisticated. Uh, he meets her down by the by the creek and they're catching crayfish and he's kind of smitten they talk about crayfish as if they're lobsters and when he talks about how pretty she is andrew she he says well she was sophisticated she lived in new york city after all and had eaten lobsters it's pretty sophisticated pretty sophisticated i grew up in rural ohio and lobster was like that was the stuff you know, I think that why we like lobster right now so much is that it's like an excuse to eat two pounds of butter. Like lobster really, <laughs> really tastes good because it's covered in butter. When you get right down to it, yeah, there's very little of it that you can actually eat, and the amount of work you have to do to get at what's in there, well, and is a lot. Lobsters <laughs> are just like big sea bugs anyway. Like they don't, yeah. they're not majestic, you know. Bears don't bother with lobsters. Bears are eating salmon. Salmon are fighters. Lobsters are just there. <laughs> There's. Did you ever have a crush on like an older girl as a as a young as like a preteen or a young teen? As a I uh yeah I guess so like twelve thirteen years old yeah because I'm I was just I was just thinking about it I can I don't I don't I don't actually remember anybody specific anymore but like. 
I do remember that feeling, and it's like the most futile thing in the whole oh, world. I do. Okay, so I do remember like completely worthless crushes on girls. How about that? Like the sure. oh, here's that girl who's worthless in the sense that there is no way that it's ever going anywhere. Yeah, like here's that girl who is in an entirely different group of people who you know you find really attractive. And then for like one day in class, she asks you for help with a question. And then you're like, oh, I'm going to think about her for a week and a half. <laughs> Great. Good job. This is either the start of a John Hughes movie or we're never going to see each other again. <laughs> I can't decide. Yeah. So I, I get that. And and David, there's certainly that theme is running throughout the book is this sense of like, it wouldn't work if David and these boys weren't the age that they are um, in that, like they are on the precipice precipice of having greater understanding of the world around them. Uh, but they still get to call themselves kids. If mm-hmm. that makes sense. Remind me to come sure. back to that if I don't. <clears throat> okay. So uh, Meg and Susan are the two girls who are new to town and their parents died in an auto accident. Uh, Susan, was way more injured than Meg was. She needs crutches to move. Um, Meg has this kind of nasty scar down her arm and some other injuries. So they're living with Ruth and the Willie Woofer Danny crew. And meanwhile, David's family life isn't great. His parents are going through a separation that'll probably become a divorce. Uh, So he spends a lot of his time at Ruth's house. Um, And Ruth is kind of like, at the beginning of the book, she seems like the cool mom. Like, she doesn't have a husband, so she kind of does whatever. And in the like this kind of like weird, stereotypical 60s way. And she like lets the boys have a beer when they want. And Ooh. talks to them about how when the carnival comes to town, there should be a hoochie-coochie show. And you're like, what are you talking about? Whoa, hoochie-coochie? Yeah, that's like a real... Yeah, it's weird. Um, it's supposed to be like a strip thing, yeah, right? Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, so you've got all these kind of 50s, 60s Americana stereotypes like baked in, like especially when the carnival comes to town and they go and watch all the carnies like set up the rides. Um, and then later on, like David and Meg go on a Ferris wheel ride. Uh, and the undercutting all of this is this like series of minor illusions to fucked uppery okay okay such as something called the game now i don't know if you like you just lost the game (sighs) andrew (laughs) (laughs) if i could give you a gold star for this podcast so far i would i'm trying real hard good job now like what was the dumbest game that you played as a kid Andrew like the and I mean like I don't mean like oh I played Monopoly Junior and wasted an afternoon like what is like the dumbest kid thing that you got into with a plum dumbest in the sense of what just like the most kiddiest uh, like, like uns- waste of time no thing? like unsafe you probably shouldn't have been doing it like could have gotten into trouble if an adult fully understood what you were up to oh yeah um okay so <laughs> Again, you know, rural Ohio growing up, uh, we were renting this this house that was, um, I don't know, it was really old, it was not in great shape, and um, we spent a lot of time wandering around, like there were some woods behind a field behind the house, mm-hmm. there was a little path into the woods, and um, my uncle and one of his friends like cleared some trees and stuff, you know, from the, from the field, and they pushed it all into this big pile of like dirt and and trees and and whatever and um so we would like get in that pile of unsafe stuff and like climb all over it and then they tried to have like a big bonfire where they burned it all down but only like half worked oh, no. <laughs> and it's, i don't know like we found an old couch back there so we go back there and sit on this old couch and like climb all over the trees and we probably could have got tetanus from like yeah anything yeah <laughs> it was less an individual thing and more just like the way we chose to spend our outdoor time oh totally we uh uh my neighbor across the street and there were parts of this book that like before it got all super messed up like totally reminded me of like you go over to the neighbor's house 
and like their parents are both working and so like you're spending your summer just like dicking around like being kind of like experimenting with whether or not you can be bad you know okay like Mm -hmm. drew and i had this game where we played it maybe twice because it got real bad where we would like fight with rubbermaid trash cans like big ones like that's ones you put out for the garbage truck we fight with them how like kind of like you're jousting like almost or like kind of like <laughs> so you the, just pick up big trash cans and just run into no, each other with more them? like more like a the joust kind of thing from the giant q-tip thing from american gladiators like basically oh, you okay, would just stand right. in the yard and try to hit the other kid with a <laughs> <trash can. laughs> uh, and then one time we i would do that now <laughs> probably be pretty we've good. got a bachelor party coming up in a month and a half or so and i would be surprised if this does not happen <laughs> Uh, there was another time where we were asked to clean up all the pine needles in Drew's backyard. So we put them all in a Rubbermaid trash can, and then we were dumping them bit by bit into a metal barrel where we were going to light them all on fire. Uh, so we poured a can of gasoline into a fire, and the gas can caught on fire, and <laughs> we like melted part of the Rubbermaid like trash can, and mm-hmm. Drew's shoe caught on fire. Like it was a it was a hot mess. Uh, so in this book, there's something called the game and one person is it and they are called the commando and they get to hang out in this orchard and they have all these like apples that they can throw at the other kids. Now the other kids are trying to get to that person and catch them. As soon as they're caught, that person gets gagged and blindfolded and tied to a tree. Cool. And then you just like mess with them. Does that does that make sense? Like tickle them, but like worse, and probably hit them, and you're like getting them to quote unquote confess something, but oh, they geez. but there's nothing for them to confess. Does that make sense? It's like little okay, kid. They're yeah. experimenting with little kid torture. Yeah, it's it's it could be a cute game. Well, and it's but it isn't but it isn't quite. Certainly not, and it is definitely not a cute game once they let Eddie start playing and no one even wants to capture Eddie cuz he's messed up. Eddie's the bad he's boy. He's the bad right? boy. And okay. then nobody and then they start catching his sister Denise and she's the first girl who plays and after they play with Denise a couple times they don't play the game very much anymore. What does can you say what happens or is it shown or uh, it's it? not shown it's only alluded to um I'll say that uh Denise never won at Commando this is from the book she was 12 okay. years old she had curly brown red hair and her skin was lightly freckled all over she had the small beginnings of breasts and thick pale prominent nipples and that's like all cool. they say about what happened to Denise in the game and up until that point David has never been that explicit about anyone's body ever so like okay is that so the the fact that we know this about her nipples is, is supposed to tell us something about what happened or? yes precisely okay all right so uh then we get this sense that things are not okay at root's house root's husband before he left and like ran away from their family was super weird and built a crazy bomb shelter in the basement um cool i guess Sure. Uh, his, I think it's described specifically as he heard Khrushchev say to the United Nations, we will bury you. Willie Sr. must have said something like, the fuck you will, and built himself a bomb shelter in the basement. <laughs> yeah, I, and even with a bomb shelter in the basement, like, I don't think you're totally no getting into stuff that nobody would have done in, like... I don't know that the early Cold War era. I don't know if the Cuban Missile Crisis has happened at this point or yet. It sounds like not, not quite, quite yet, but, but that's what it's building towards. And that's yeah, yeah, yeah. I guess it's not addressed in like the latter half of the book. Excuse me, but that does seem to be what Ketchum is is up to a little bit. By what's that? I think he's he's interested in what we didn't admit we were up to in this era. Um, I've, I've okay. read interviews with him. Uh, there's one on uh, Chuck Pahulaniak, the guy who wrote uh, Fight Club. Nice. Chuck Achoo, bless, God bless you. Um, 
<laughs> There's an interview with with uh, Jack Ketchum on his website where he talks where he's he doesn't want to let himself be labeled as political, but he certainly has misgivings about kind of classic right wing conservatism and and the foundation laid for it during the McCarthy era and kind mm-hmm. of the lies that we were telling ourselves about the nation that we were in his opinion. Yeah. Uh, so to set this book in this small town where it's so terrible, where this terrible stuff happens, uh, kind of seems that's why maybe he was interested in this actual story, the Soviet okay. story. Uh, so from this point where we've got this bomb shelter in the basement and things don't things don't all seem right at uh, Root's house, it takes this dramatic turn where no longer are we in this Americana novel that I thought it was maybe gonna be I guess I was being naive like Americana with vague tension yeah um turns to horror yeah so uh David gets Ruth into trouble uh, gets a uh, Meg into trouble excuse me when he and Meg are kind of hanging out and then um they're all they're like cleaning up tree worms in Ruth's backyard or something and and Ruth starts calling Meg a slut in front of all the boys and really demeaning her and being very explicit about it um and Meg gets into trouble and kind of runs out of the house and to reprimand Meg Ruth ends up uh like beating up Susan and and uh David watches and is horrified by what's happening. That's a little that's Meg's little sister, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Who okay. is in no physical condition to handle that kind of stuff. Yeah, of course. Um and at one point David uh sees Meg get like hit in the face like through their window like he's watching from his yard. Um and then in like the next chapter or so uh, Willie, one of the one of Root's boys, says to David while they're bowling, "We have our own game now," uh, and he invites David over to watch them all like tickle Meg, and then she slaps one of the boys for uh, touching her breast, and then she gets into incredible trouble, um, and Susan gets beat up again, and David is watching this and realizes that an adult is playing the game which is like a turning point in how he is like viewing all of this right so this this whole this whole notion of like who is an adult and who is a child and if this violence is perpetrated by children it's part of this kind of game where you're exploring the world around you and like what is it for an adult to be doing it like that's run throughout the book that makes sense Mm -hmm. um so what takes all of this to the next level is that uh on the july 4th there's like this you know everyone's out there's a fair everybody's walking around and meg goes to a policeman and tries to tell her tell him what's going on and david doesn't see exactly what happens except that he knows a cop car comes to root's house and that meg is in a crap load of trouble for doing that that the policeman does not believe what meg said and that Ruth is going to punish her for it. Great. Um, Good detective work. And I... Pal. Yeah, I want to uh, read this this passage from the book where the thing about David is the book is all over his shoulder. You never are away from his perspective. So right. despite him being, quote-unquote, the good one you immediately feel culpable every time he doesn't stop what's going on or any, any, you know, there's a scene where it's like a boys will be boys. They go out camping in the backyard and they decide to climb up a tree and watch Meg get undressed through her window. And this is before the, the kind of terrible stuff has started happening. And there's this section where David gets angry at her for not like having the lights on and letting, letting her see him. Like, he catches himself getting angry at women for not, like, being available to his voyeurism, which is, like, mm-hmm. totally fucked up. Um, yeah, that's not awesome. Um, it's Yeah, because there, there are people doing bad stuff, and then there are the people who stand by and, and let it happen. Yeah, it's funny. And, like... <sighs> You meant you mentioned earlier, and you said you wanted to come back to it. I don't know if it if, if we're ready to come back to that yet or not. But you know, they still 
kind of our kids kind of consider themselves mm-hmm. to be kids. Mm-hmm. And of course that comes into play with like the, you know, Ruth telling them they can do all this stuff. But there's also a very particular like kind of peer pressure. Yeah. Especially around this age, mm-hmm. I think. Like if you're around a big group of kids or boys especially who think that doing something like this is okay. Like even if you would never do it yourself, you're way more likely to just go along with it and not say anything. I mean, there were, there were times I'm sure there are times like that for you where, where stuff like that happened and you know, nothing, nothing so awful as this, but, or it's even just like not speaking up when something shitty's happening you know like mm-hmm. at, a, at a very base level it doesn't even have to be something that's violent but it's like where are you gonna plant your flag and draw your line so that something bad doesn't happen and, and a lot of times as a kid you don't because so much of your you don't have anything else to hang your identity on other than what other people think of you <laughs> yeah right um and it's being different sucks a lot when you're a little kid i don't know because you'd all through elementary school and high school and all that, like these people are kind of your circle and there's not really much getting away from them for the next, however many years it is. And, um, I guess the the urge to fit in with, with that group of people, like you're just, you're less socially mobile. Yeah. It's if, if a group of people doesn't like stops working out, you can't just like go do another thing. Yeah, you know, yeah, you you kind of are always trying to make it work with those people who you have to be around all the time. I don't yeah, know. well, and the closest analog you have as an adult is like your workplace, but even then, you have a little bit more mobility, or you, there's a little bit more acceptance of like I'm just gonna not be a social with my office mates. I'm just gonna kind of be the yeah, person just, who shows up, does my do job, your... and goes home. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You can't do that as a kid. You don't have that. Age. You can't show up, show up, do the work, like ace your math test and i just head home no i mean some kids do but you can't punch out of school and just <laughs> head home have a beer well watch parks and recreation no. reruns <laughs> uh so i actually the the whole idea of them being kids is kind of part of this passage i wanted to read um david is thinking over the trouble that meg is now in and how he's brought she has brought it on herself yeah, he he gets into these moments where, like, despite his obvious affection for her and his doubts about what is going on in this house, he still catches himself getting angry at her or being frustrated by her. So, here you go. The policeman is your friend. Horseshit. None of us would have done it. We knew better. You could actually almost resent her for it. It was as though in failing with Mr. Jennings, she had thrown in all of our faces the very fact of just how powerless we were as kids. It was as though in failing herself, Meg had failed us as well. So we turned that anger outward toward Meg. Um, There's another path somewhere in, in between where I skipped over. We were just kids. We were property. We belonged to our parents, body and soul. So there's this like larger frustration of the individual versus authority, I guess, in like a weird kid adult way where the adults are supposed to be in charge and you feel like you're being persecuted for them by being 12. And here's this girl who is obviously in real danger, but other kids who are her peers see it as just like a failed rebellion that then gets is worth resenting, you know? Well, and what I, what I also get from that is, um, Given that this is being told, you know, in a frame narrative where it's somebody who's 40 or whatever looking back at his childhood, I think it's a pretty clear attempt to cast the blame elsewhere. Yes. Like, we are we are kids. We are not fully autonomous, and therefore we are not fully responsible for our actions. Or, or at least point out where that is problematic. I actually think that the narrator doesn't let himself off the hook. As as much as that sounds like it does, you know what I mean? Okay. Um, he, sure. There, we don't spend a lot of time with him in the quote unquote present day, but he talks about how he's had, you know, two failed marriages. He's approaches he's approaching a third. Uh, he can't have kids because of what happens in this book. Um, and Cantor doesn't want uh, to. Really, the latter, but it's functionally the first. 
Does okay. that make sense? So we should probably. I mean, we've been dancing around what happens, putting yeah. it off. But I think I think we need to get into like the really ugly stuff. So okay, yeah, we had the we had the disclaimer up front. If you've been listening up till now, I don't think it's been too bad, except for a couple couple, couple cuss bombs. Yeah, but um, yeah, it's gonna get it's gonna get bad from here till the end. I so think probably, right? yeah, how about I try and just do it? Do like a quick rundown of it. Is that okay? okay. Yeah, just the the laundry list, and then we can unpack. Yeah. It. Uh, so after what happens in this like speech, um, you know, David says, uh, so we, you know, he says, "Fuck it, let it go where it goes." And the next chapter is one sentence long, and it just says, "Where it went was the basement." Uh, so remember, there's this crazy bomb shelter in the basement. And what ends up happening is Ruth and her boys uh, confine and imprison Meg in the basement in this bomb shelter. And she is tied up, like strung up by rope uh, on nails in the, in the like rafters. And they torture her. They torture the shit out of her. Uh, it starts small with a like trying to make her cry by running into her and treating her like a football tackling dummy. Um, and it builds towards like ripping off her clothes and then trying to make her, uh, uh, that's a little bit later. Um, and then, you know, like pinching her and, and, you know, demeaning her, et cetera, et cetera. And these, all of these sections of torture and terribleness are intercut with like, and then Ruth goes upstairs to eat some crackers and cheese and drink a beer, uh, just gotta take a break yeah it's like oh it's fucked uh and where david is coming from david never perpetrates anything but he constantly admits that he needed to know what was happening like at this point meg is not even the person that he was like that he holds in his brain as dear she's this thing that is having things perpetrated to her on her you Mm -hmm. know in the basement um At one point, uh, they talk about um, kind of ripping off her clothes and uh, doing things to her while she's naked. And David starts to protest. And, of course, uh, Woofer, of all people, turns on him and says, we've got permission from Ruth. And this issue of permission is kind of tantamount to that theme I said earlier about, like, an adult playing the game. Um, And that's where it feels very Lord of the Flies, (laughs) you know, where it's like these boys are just doing terrible shit and they're like, well, we, we were told we could, what do you want? You know, Um, while this is happening, it hasn't gotten sexual yet other than the stripping. And, you know, they're obviously still hurting her. Uh, and all the time, to- like the whole time while this is happening, Ruth is getting uh, progressively less sane and kind of having a mental breakdown. Um, the implication is that she is, Ruth herself is not okay. Uh, and the the house is coming into disarray. David is watching this happen. He He goes to his dad. And he doesn't quite know how to tell his dad about it, but he asks his dad about, like, hitting women and, like, whether or not that's okay. They have a back and forth where his dad's kind of like, you you know, you really shouldn't do that. You should just avoid violence, like, whatever. And David pushes, and his dad admits that sometimes you get pushed. Uh, And David has this kind of wave of understanding that maybe what's at the root of... His parents' divorce is that his dad hit his mother. And then that chapter just ends with the line, and nothing whatever was solved. So there's this like... Good job, David's dad. Yeah, there's this like... I was waiting for somebody to be not totally a dick in this story, nope. and you failed everybody. Nope. So good job. And again, it's this like disillusionment with the generation ahead of you, where it's you turn to them... They have nothing before you but ash and shit. <laughs> and then you say, well, I guess that's the world I'm in. Time to go learn more about it, I suppose. It's a very like morbid way of, of that thing that we all do where we realize that our parents are just people. Yes, it's a very extreme way of that. Like, yeah. 
Like usually we don't figure that out because they tied a little girl up in the basement and let people slap her around or whatever. But, but yeah. Um, so uh, then it gets worse. Um, the other kids in the town are allowed to kind of come over. It becomes this weird, like almost tragic comically allowed thing. Um, the implication is that maybe parents know in town, but nobody really knows what's going on, so they don't talk about it. Again, these girls were from somewhere else. It's not like they grew up in the town, um, and Ruth is some sort of pariah anyway, so no one's going to stick their nose in her business. Um, so Eddie gets involved. He starts doing terrible stuff that I don't want to talk about because it actually makes me a little like sick. Um, pretty gross, just gross, terrible stuff. Okay. Um and then, uh, like, did his sister Denise gets involved, and Kenny gets involved, and the older brother of the three, Willie Woofer Donnie, Donnie kind of is always taking it a little sexually uh, and touching her when she can, and he's the one that's closest to David in age, and, and he feels like the one who's falling the farthest, if that makes sense. Like, Willie and Woofer are almost presented as, like, animals. Uh, Donnie's mm-hmm. the intelligent one who succumbs to it um so uh there's this like weird like party scene where there's like people from all over town involved and then some kid tells his mom and as the book describes her his this kid's mom is like strictly catholic and believes yeah that girl probably deserved it she's probably a slut whatever and it's like oh great okay awesome Everybody is failing everything always in this mm-hmm. book. Like every test of like moral fortitude that you could concoct, these people are mm-hmm. failing. Uh, so David eventually decides that he can't. He has his like, I am basically a standby Nazi supporter. He doesn't say as much, but I'm using the word Nazi because Ketchum uses it about David actually. <laughs> like Great. the, I... You know, they came for the X and I said nothing kind of thing. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, I don't know, David. Maybe you should wait a couple more weeks and see what uh, happens before you try telling anybody. So he tries to help her escape. He sneaks in there in the middle of the night. And, of course, what's been holding Meg back the whole time is uh, her sister Susan. And rather than run away, take the money that David like hides for her in the woods and then like try and come back to help Susan. She tries to escape with Susan and gets caught. Um, This leads to her being raped by one of the boys and then Ruth going on this like full on assault on uh, Meg as a sexual creature where she like brands her stomach and does all other nasty, terrible stuff to her. Um, In the meantime, David is basically like, finally admitted to Ruth and these other kids that he is not in any way supporting what they're doing. Uh, and so they beat him up and lock him in the safe with like the, the bomb shelter with her. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it doesn't have a happy ending. Uh, they, they do kind of initiate a big escape plan. Uh, Meg ends up dying from injuries sustained, but David uh, does kill Ruth and Susan gets to like live somewhere else. Um, And then it kind of flashes forward to uh, again, the the modern day in the eighties where David is like looking back on where those terrible kids wound up. And one of them was a serial murderer and one of them died young and you know, they're terrible people. Um, cool. Opening, leaving the door open for a sequel. Oh, God, I hope not. It's like, I hope I, I bet our listeners can tell that my experience reading this book, especially about 50% of the way through to the end, was just this, like, iteration of repulsion. Um, right, and, and we're... You're presenting a fairly like sterilized version of it. Yeah. Um, even compared to like the synopses that you can read if you if you Google. Oh my right god, now. I was reading a synopsis like, like just to make sure I wasn't missing anything, and I was surprised at the stuff that was in the Wikipedia article. Like yeah. it's terrible. So, um, 
Mm-hmm. <sighs> so it's it. This is one of those those times where. I don't know. Your reaction to a book is so visceral that that it's hard to convey. Like, I definitely don't want to be like, "Oh, you should, you guys should go read this and experience this this f- fresh hell for yourselves." <laughs> but, no, not at all. I kind of don't know that I want anyone to, unless they're like really curious. It's well written. I don't know. <laughs> like, it obviously got a reaction out of you. I mean, I don't know if it if it. Did that through being like super manipulative or or what? You know what it is? It's like it. I think it would be hard to write about this subject matter and not elicit the reaction that you're having is what I'm saying. Uh, Yeah. I will say that um, Ketchum pulls one punch uh, towards the end. Oh, thanks, Jack. He he tells you what's going to happen. It's one of the most, it's the most heinous thing in the book, I think. Um, And, uh, Instead of showing it to you, it cuts to a chapter of David just saying, I'm not going to tell you about this. I refuse to. There are things you know you'll die before telling, things you know you should have died before ever having seen, I watched and saw. And that is the whole chapter. Um, So there are things that you read. There are things that you know you'll die before you tell our listeners. Precisely, actually. Yeah. Um, Yeah, So art, (laughs) life imitates art. It's, I guess... Yeah, case. we talked. We kind of spent the first half of the podcast talking about some of the like kid-related bad behavior themes. I I think the latter part of the discussion that maybe thankfully we don't have as much time for is um, torture porn in a way. Like his books have certainly been accused, and this book in particular has have certainly been accused of that. I think what maybe excuses this book from a intellectual curiosity standpoint is that it is based on something that happened so he's he there are really terrible details that he took right from the actual like crime um and it it seems like he gets around to like condemning what's happening instead of just like reporting it straight right oh yeah i mean the the main character sounds like he would flay himself alive if he could like rationally justify that act um and he certainly talks about uh, the only, you know, the only thing that matters is the last thing you do is one of the sentiments that Meg gives. So his depiction of Meg is actually one of stalwart dignity, despite all of the things that have happened to her. Um, yeah. There's much made throughout the torture sequences of her not crying and her defending her sister and, I would say her being almost oddly articulate. That was like maybe the one thing in the book that she was pretty, like the dialogue that she was saying when terrible things were happening to her almost sounded too calm. But then again, it's, it's a book. She's not like shouting in a movie or anything like that. Um, Right. Yeah. It's yeah. I don't read a lot of, I don't watch a lot of like just straight up horror movies, you know? Yeah, I don't either. I just it's not it's not a genre that Well, cuz like for October, right? We read like spooky books. Yeah, we didn't But and and there's like there's horror and then there's this I guess I would say it's it's a more recent horror thing, right? Like there's there's Rosemary's Baby where like bad stuff happens and there's like a supernatural element and it's kind of horrible, but it's not like you don't wince to read it. No. And then there's this this new strain of horror that seems specifically engineered to make you hate watching it, you know? Yeah, this does... Like, that's the reaction you're well, supposed to have. Well, and this book is, is basically designed to make you feel culpable. Like, this book made me feel bad about reading it. Like, does that make sense? Like, Yeah, no, by, definitely. Literally, by bearing witness to fictional events that I knew were based on real events, like, I felt terrible. Um and that's a successful writer, I suppose. Um, I, I actually want to give Ketchum a little more credit than I would if, if this were wholly fictional, I suppose, because uh, he certainly has made me think about where this comes from. I think there's a, there's a far less uh, graphic book that I remember reading in college called That Night. I can't remember the name of the author right now. Um, but it starts with a whole like, 
it was 60s America and everyone was or like super cool with themselves maybe even 50s like super cool with what America was and this girl like gets knocked up and all the dads in the neighborhood want to beat up her boyfriend and like it becomes this like mob fight uh, and mm-hmm. th- that whole book is this sense of what was lying underneath uh, you know the nostalgic America that we all the, the leave it to beaver kind of yeah and this is this is like a very extreme version of that it sounds like like a dark evil shitty mirror universe version of i don't know like the the summers that you'd spend in um to kill a mockingbird or something yeah. just like chilling with your bro and your yeah, pal yeah stephen king called this book the um the dark side of the moon stand by me like it is just <laughs> <Okay>. the worst <laughs> Awesome. Um, I just want to give a little bit of context to where Ketchum's coming from. There's a from that earlier interview I mentioned. Um, he gets asked, like, you know, we've heard that the expression "kids can be so cruel" and it makes them like sadistic in this Lord of the Flies way. Like, where does that come from? And Ketchum says, "Kids are experimenting with the world and their place in it. They do crazy things by adult standards. They play with matches. They run with scissors." And it stands to reason that they'll play with pain to one degree or another, uh, their own pain and others. Um, and he's just kind of woven that idea and that concept in with his own, you know, mixed nostalgia for his childhood, I think. Um, yeah. He wrote the book, like, while he was working in his parents' diner, I guess, off and on. Like, he was back living in his old neighborhood, um while he what is that conversation like <laughs> like hey what what you working on jack oh nothing just some just some torture porn is uh, cool no big I, deal I, 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 do you want a refill that's terrible his i was just rereading my notes his his mother had passed away by the time he was writing this book um and so i don't know like there isn't a direct analog to any themes in the book of that, but he, he certainly seemed to be wrestling with his childhood. You'd have to be in a bad mood to write this. I yes. Think. I don't know. Certainly. I don't know. Did um, we so, did we cover it all? I guess so. I think it, we're close enough, right? And we're over. Definitely out of time. Again, anyway, so um, so that's The Girl Next Door, right? Like if if... I don't even know what to tell people to do. Like email us, I guess <laughs> at overduepod at gmail.com. You can tweet at us about the show at twitter.com slash overdue pod. Um, hit us on Facebook at facebook.com slash overdue pod. Craig, if they want to find out more about maybe some of the cheerier episodes that we've done, where, where can they go to, to find out? Yeah. About that? On our website, overduepodcast.com. There's our episode from last week, uh, The Little House on the Prairie. Just like go listen to that again, please. It's very, it's it's pretty very good. nice. I listened to it as I was editing it like the whole way through. And it's, yes, it's sunny and and cheery and a little racist, but, but in retrospect, not so horrifying. Um, you can also find links to uh, Amazon links to the books that we've read so you can buy them and read them for yourselves. Um, we've got info on what we're reading next. Uh, we've got links to our iTunes and Stitcher feeds. If you wanted to go to iTunes or even Stitcher and leave a review or a rating, that would be a great way for other people to discover the show and for us to know what you think. Uh, that's always helpful. We like that. Uh, a lot of people have been telling us what they think on Twitter and Facebook over the past week. Um, I want to give a shout out to Margaret, of course, from last week. Uh, J Deep, Amanda, Robert, Emily is reading. Tuva, uh, <laughs> Bettina, Sophie, Anna, Alyssa, Sean, Meredith, Chris uh, on Facebook. Colleen, Kevin, who is the one who told us about those ticks and ironing. Uh, Oswaldo, who gave us a shout out about Frankenstein and my weird laugh. Uh, Sean, who had some real nice things to say about our foundation episode. Uh, and Lee as well wrote into us on Facebook. And Emily wrote in saying that she, to, to our email, overdupod.gmo.com, that she had been wilder for three Halloweens, which is pretty cool, I guess. Uh, but <laughs> Laura Ingalls Wilder, that is. Uh, but she's yeah, right. a student at University of Wisconsin-Madison, I think. Uh, and she saw Debbie Reese, who's one of the writers that Margaret cited, 
uh, speak about some of the issues surrounding the image of the Native American in U.S. Lit and that some of the issues we raised last week were spot on. So thanks for for writing in, Emily. That's super cool and super more cool than torturous books from the 80s yeah um the reaction overall to to margaret's guest spot last week like we had a good time she had a good time you guys all seem to be having a good time so we are definitely gonna try and make that happen again um sometime oh one of the ways that we can make that happen uh we are running a patreon uh, it's way, like I said before. It's a way for people to support the show. Patreon.com/slash/overduepod. We are really, really close to our milestone goal of extra episodes. Uh, the milestone goal basically allows Andrew and I to just carve out time in our lives to make extra episodes for you, the listener, and patrons will get access to it early. Yes, it'll be one one show per month is what we're planning, and um, yeah, well, we I don't think we're going to be able to record them on any kind of set schedule, but it will be one per month. Patrons of all you know levels will get access a week early, and then it'll just go up on the feed. At and some certainly, point. those will be a um, good reason to get some of our favorite guest hosts back on the show and and reach yeah. out to other ones. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, so that that's it. One hundred fifty per month. We're at one hundred thirty per month now. Um, we've been using the money to buy books to pay for hosting, like we've already said. And um, this week, we bought Craig a new whoop microphone. Whoop. Like we've got, it's it's really nice to have a little bit of a little bit of scratch to to spend on upgrading the show so thank you guys so much who've donated and if you want to donate that's at patreon.com slash overdue pod thank you for listening if you're still listening to this episode of the show andrew what are you reading for next week i'm gonna be reading looking for alaska by john green which i suspect is not about torture porn but i guess we'll have to wait and see okay craig would you say that you regretted reading this book or like no i it's because since this came from a listener like how do you feel about about what they made you do um <laughs> yeah in, in the, the end, end i i f- i don't regret reading it i don't know how much i want to think about it it was it okay. was gripping in a way that i have not felt as uncomfortable comfortably gripped perhaps in a while does that make sense like i yeah it does definitely uh there's a quote from ketchum where he says um like he wanted you to feel culpable just for turning the page and i i certainly did and that's that is a very distinct great distinct uh achievement on his part so all right guys you are culpable for listening (laughs) to this podcast by the way Um, We will be back next week with a brighter episode, I think. Until then, try really, really hard to be happy. (laughs) 